Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I, I think you're going to enjoy today's presentation. It's a talk that Tim Leary gave back in 1982. And I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But uh, first, I want to take the time to thank two of our fellow saloners who have made donations in the past week to uh, help offset some of the expenses associated with producing these podcasts. And these two kind souls are Christopher S. and Jeff M. And I thank you both for your kind support. Uh, you guys rock. Now, uh, there are a couple things I want to mention later on, but first let's get right into today's talk. As I mentioned, it is uh, by Dr. Timothy Leary, and it was given back in 1982. Uh, there was no documentation that came with this file, and so I can't say for sure what the occasion was uh, for giving it, but my guess is that this was from the same conference where Sasha Shulgin and Terrence McKenna gave the talks that uh, I podcasted my 100th podcast. And uh, that was also the conference where Dr. Andrew Weil gave his uh, presentation that I published in podcast number 103. So I, I asked my wife, who was uh, actually at that conference, if she remembered hearing Tim Leary's talk. Uh, and she said, yeah, I thought he was, I think he was there, but uh, her main memory turns out to uh, be that of Terrence McKenna, who uh, Dr. Leary doesn't mention in this talk, uh, probably because that was uh, Terrence's first big gig, and uh, not too many people knew who he was at the time. Now, while Dr. Leary titled this talk, The Intelligent Use of Psychedelic Drugs, I think an equally appropriate title could be A History of the Tribe. As uh, we listen to him talk about the positive potential he sees for the baby boomer generation when he gave this talk back in 1982, you may find it interesting to consider how they are actually turning out. <laughs> it seems to me that uh, they may have just bankrupted the country. Well done, boomers. As the song says, nobody does it better. So now let's uh, join Dr. Timothy Leary, who... I think was still on parole at the time uh, uh, this was given. Uh, he was released uh, early from a 20-year prison sentence for possessing less than a half an ounce of cannabis. And if that sounds a bit harsh to you, it's because you may not be fully aware of the fact that those kinds of sentences uh, were being handed out to a significant number of people. States like uh, Texas, for example, where I used to practice law, we're uh, still handing out life sentences for a positive cannabis test in 1990. In fact, uh, I believe that uh, poor Tyrone Brown is still in a Texas prison for a minor cannabis infraction. Of course, he's black, uh, which is almost still a crime in some parts of the South. But enough of my preaching to the choir. Uh, let's get on with the program, and I'll be back after we listen to Dr. Timothy Leary speaking about the intelligent use of psychedelic drugs. Tim's going to be speaking on intelligent uses of psychedelic drugs. Here's Tim Leary. Thank you, thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. How about that, huh? <laughs> well, I think it is fantastic that we're here tonight. <laughs> you know, it's a tie. It's night. 1982, this is the year of doom and gloom, isn't it? <laughs> and here we have assembled on the banks of the Pacific Ocean with Venus burning a golden hole in the velvet sky up there. The moon's almost full. <laughs> and um, we've assembled to discuss the intelligent use of drugs. <laughs> I think the world should take note. I think you should applaud yourself for being here. How about that, huh? <laughs> so, uh, the key to uh, evolution in any species is swarming. And we've got enough intelligent members of any species together decided they're going to move in one direction into the future. It's going to happen. So the more swarms like this, the better. Now, we are not alone tonight uh, because behind us and in front of us there are many generations of intelligent women and men who have met throughout the centuries to discuss what we're going to talk about tonight, the intelligent use of drugs or how to access your brain efficiently to help yourself develop. Now, uh, you know, uh, people like us sometimes get a bad reputation <laughs> in places like Iran or Judeo-Christian America and so forth. Uh, Sometimes, you know, we're led to believe that we're not somehow straight arrow. <laughs> so I want you to remember and recall what you know anyway when you walk out of here tonight with your shoulders back and your eyes looking up to that beautiful star-filled sky that we represent the aristocratic exploring elite of our species, and we always have. Because we're all united here on the eternal quest of uh, inner exploration, uh, discovery, uh, the adventure of knowing yourself, of stimulating growth, personal evolution, and so on. It started, what, two, three, four thousand years ago back in the banks of the Ganges, uh, when perhaps for the first time in recorded history, women and men got together and said, hey, there's more than just a caste system, there's more than just survival, root animal uh, existence. The purpose of human life is to go within and find out who you are. The purpose of human life is to grow. The Sanskrit word, as uh, Andre tells us in that funny movie, the uh, Sanskrit word for to be is to grow. Back there in the Ganges, um, several thousand years ago, this idea developed. And, you know, the first recorded book of human uh, development, of human religion, for that matter, are the Vedas. And the first book of the Vedas is a hymn in homage of Soma. And you all know what Soma is. Then we popped up again. Uh, well, I could go on forever telling us about how great we are in the past. We popped up again <laughs> in Athens. You remember that wonderful time in Athens? when That was a hippie time when everyone went running around saying, I'm a philosopher. It's up to me to figure out, you know, uh, what are the elements or what life is all about. Uh, um, You know, remember Socrates said, uh, the purpose of, of an intelligent human life is self-discovery. Now, how come that funny little peninsula there, yet Sparta, a few miles away, like San Luis Obispo, which was given over to military engineering, 
Barta's Gordon Liddy's sort of town. But how come places like Athens and Santa Barbara pop up now and then in human history uh, where people have the courage and the ambition to uh, pose these basic questions? Well, just north of, uh, of Athens is a place called uh, Eleusis. And you well know, know the Eleusinian mysteries for hundreds and hundreds of years were practiced there. Uh, Plato, Aristotle, most of those great philosophers went through the mysteries there. And uh, recently, uh, drug ethologists and uh, scholars like Robert Gordon Watson and Legra have uh, to told us that the key to the Eleusinian mysteries was a ceremonial plant, which is probably related to LSD. Now, we popped up, uh, we popped up throughout history in France, uh, the Hashishines, Baudelaire, Gautier, um, Verlain. Uh, we popped up in England, uh, Wordsworth, um, um, Coleridge, um, Nietzsche, Nietzsche. Nietzsche was over there in Germany. You know, he was very sickly. He used to say when he went to see Nietzsche, he was like um, going into a, a drugstore. <laughs> I wonder why he got all those crazy ideas. Uh, now, you're never going to read about the history... You're never going to read about the history of brain exploration in the textbooks in institutions like this, tax-supported, run by academic politicians to keep young people serenely and productively stupid. You have to, you know, uh, it's an intelligence test. If you want to get smart, you have to learn how to get smart. You have to look through history and you'll find the fingerprints, the footprints, the uh, uh, vapor trails of people like us <laughs> who have been doing what we're doing here tonight, uh, trying to uh, learn how to grow and develop and make it a better planet. Um, you know, American history is filled with people who you knew how to use drugs intelligently. Robert Louis Stevenson, Edgar Allan Poe. You know, Edgar Allan Poe was actually considered in Europe to be the ultimate uh, North American writer. He's much more famous there than here. Um, the, um, coming from Harvard, as I used to, it was a source of great amusement to realize that uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who really started the American Transcendental Movement, who, went, who got kicked out of Harvard, I think it was 1838, because he went there and said, don't go to those big Unitarian and Presbyterian churches in Boston. You're going to find God within, uh, transcend this outer stuff. They didn't want him around. They kept him away for 38 years. Uh, how come he got that way? Well, it turned out that he, along with Margaret Fuller, our first great feminist woman, had gone over to Europe and hung out with uh, the Wordsworths um, and the Hashishines in, um, in Paris. And it's, we have well-documented stories of how they, they turned on uh, intelligently to pursue the philosophic quest. My, my favorite Harvard uh, intellectual is a man named William James, who uh, actually founded the psychology department there. He's considered to be the father of American psychology. At the age of 13, according to his brother Henry's um, memoirs, William James was in France. Now talk about teenage punks. <laughs> At the age of 13, <laughs> William James, uh, coming from one of our top Brahmin Boston families, was experimenting with all sorts of curious and strange brain drugs in France. He later wrote the book, Varieties of Literature Experience, um, in which he said over and over again, no attempt at the metaphysical quest, no attempt to probe the philosophic wonders of the cosmos can be undertaken by those that don't have some experience with uh, uh, chemicals. In his case, it was uh, peyote nitrous oxide. So, <laughs> not to mention... Um, 
a man that I admire so much that you just heard talking here has just told us about the uh, role of Harvard University and the uh, CIA in the um, non-intelligent use of drugs. So uh, as I speak tonight and as we confer here tonight, we are not alone. Uh, this tradition of interquest has always been a little on the outs because the power holders, the politicians, the kings, the generals, the bishops, the popes, one thing they're all agreed on, they don't want human beings learning how to access their own brains. Because if they do that, self-reward, self-growth, self-development takes the place of uh, slavery for the hive. Now, <clears throat> this was first brought to my attention in 1961 by one of my great teachers, Aldous Huxley, who came to join us at Harvard then. Um, I remember one night, one night... <laughs> During actually it was a psilocybin session, when uh, I was kind of complaining to Alice Oxley about the slowness of the American public to catch on to the fact that you can act access and activate your own brain, and um, Alice said, "Well, you must realize, Timothy, that um, the religion of this country is totally based upon uh, opposition to drugs." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, Timothy, haven't you read the Bible?" Well, no, there's nothing about drugs in the Bible. He said, well, you should go back and read it again. Don't you remember Genesis, the first book of the Bible? Uh, Jehovah, you know, he's an old shepherd, Semitic, uh, macho, mafia, condominium owner. <laughs> Jehovah, just out of the, out of the hunter-gatherer stage, early paleolith god, you know, looks around and said uh, to Adam and Eve, hey, this is mine, but I'm going to let you live in this wonderful Garden of Eden. Uh, do, do whatever you want, except there are a couple of food and drug regulations. <laughs> See this tree here? The fruit of this is a controlled substance. <laughs> and you are forbidden by law to ingest, absorb in any way, taste of this, because if you do, the blinds will fall from your eyes and you'll see through good and evil and become a god like me. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Adam said, no, sir. See the fruit of this tree over here? This is also a controlled substance because if you eat of this, you will become immortal and a god like me. You don't want to do that, do you? Of course, Adam said, uh, no, sir. Now, it's very curious about most of the uh, organized political associations and the great, great monolithic, monotheistic uh, power religions is they are all very male-oriented and they're not very friendly to, uh, to the female sex. You know, Christianity is not very um, flattering to women. They lay all the blame on Eve, remember? That as soon as Jehovah had jumped in his squad car and gone back to headquarters, it was that naughty hip-wiggling Eve that, that led poor straight arrow Adam. <laughs> Adam, you've got to try this. <laughs> I guess kind of comic, you know, the sirens come and the first narcotics bust in history is Jehovah. So, Aldous Huxley continued, you see that, what's Christianity all about? Well, um, the only son of Jehovah, Ralph, came down here uh, to sacrifice his life for our original sin. Oh, yeah? What was our original sin? Oh, the original sin was the one in the garden, I see. 
The original sin was the intelligent use of drugs in the Garden of Eden. Alice says, it's not going to be easy, Timothy. <laughs> now, you know, believe it or not, I, I've come here tonight loaded with scientific uh, and technological information um, to uh, discuss the intelligent use of drugs. But after listening to uh, John's talk and this incredible rapport with the audience, I realized that most everyone in this audience is using drugs more intelligently than I am tonight. <laughs> So, uh, I'm in a bad position here. Well, uh, <laughs> odorless, odorless, colorless uh, local water. <laughs> anyway, uh, yes. Berkeley. Right. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> Robert Anton Wilson. How about a round of applause for Robert Anton Wilson? Hey. Hail Harris, yes. Yes, I intended to uh, give a list. Why don't I do it anyway? Let's have a little fun here tonight. We belong to such an incredible gathering. Of, 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 I listed all these historic people like Nietzsche and Plato. But listen, in our lifetime, we've seen some incredible people come through. Uh, uh, Richard Alpert, Baba Ramdas. How about a round of applause for him? Hey. <laughs> And Ken Kesey, huh? Yeah. And Allen Ginsberg. And one of the greatest who's not here with us at the moment, but we'll meet him somewhere along the line. Uh, well, John Lennon, right. I was going to include him, but I was also going to mention uh, someone who's much less known than, than uh, John Lennon, probably the most underestimated philosopher of our time, Alan Watts. How about him? Uh, yeah. Well, enough of this stroking of each other. Huh? <laughs> Let's get down to business. <laughs> the intelligent use of drugs. Well, let me define my terms. First of all, when, I, when we talk about drugs, I'm not talking about the intelligent use of Rolaid <laughs> or the new wonder drug that's going to cure dread herpes, too. <laughs> uh, we're talking about drugs that affect the brain. So at this moment... I think I should um, introduce a commercial from my sponsor, The Human Brain. This show is being brought to you by The Human Brain. It's a 40 billion cell biocomputer. And I'm told by my turned on computer friends that probably every neuron of the 40 billion is as complex as the most powerful computer that IBM has yet developed. So we're talking about, you know, we're talking about real stuff here when we talk about The Human Brain. Now, interesting about the human brain, uh, there's a secret about this incredible organ of intelligence and pleasure. The secret is this. We are not taught that the human brain is perfect. Unless you have a steel plate in your head or less than two inches of forehead, you're carrying around a perfect instrument to perform the human function. Now, look at that little bird brain. Yeah, the little bird. Little bird brain. That little bird brain can take that little fella from Vancouver, 6,000 miles, down to Guatemala, uncharted, you know, without any road, any road maps. Can land on a branch there uh, on a, in a gale of 50 miles an hour on those two little feet exactly where she or he's supposed to be to get it on. With, uh, 
Now that's something, huh? The tiny little... They're working with, what, about 10 million of the little neurons. We got 40 billion of them. <clears throat> now, um, well, if the human brain is so perfect, man, <laughs> how come we get the Ayatollah? <laughs> or how come we get Ronald Reagan? <laughs> well, listen, the Ayatollah is perfect. Ronnie's brain is perfect. It was just that early imprinting that fucked them up. Because <laughs> this brain is a computer, you know? You can only get out of a computer what you program it for. And uh, the, uh, you just get to a computer and you punch in, uh, you know, you know uh, Ronnie, Reagan, you know, rah-rah, Iowa, you know. Rah rah, Air Force Army. <laughs> yeah. Rah rah, World War Three, boy. <laughs> rah rah, oil companies. Yeah. You're not going to get a very interesting program out of that computer. <laughs> now, as a corollary, I submit to you that all drugs are perfect too. Uh, now, sure, drugs can be used. Stupidly. As a matter of fact, that's probably the key to my address to you tonight, my dear friends. The problem with drugs is that stupid people use drugs stupidly. <laughs> Coarse, crude, vulgar people use drugs in a vulgar way. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, intelligent, thoughtful, Adventurous, you know, serious-minded people that want to have a lot of fun are going to use drugs intelligently. And, of course, that's what's happening. Quietly, invisibly, without many, you know, you don't go around with a big, uh, you know, honk if you, if you use drugs intelligently. <laughs> like the bumper sticker we have in L.A. says, honk if you think you're Jesus. thing about the, you know, drugs being perfect is, um, you know, God wouldn't have made drugs if drugs weren't perfect for us. <laughs> now, I don't know who you call God. You can call God uh, DNA or you can biological wisdom. I don't name what, care what name you give her. But, uh, <laughs> the moon, right, the moon. But, uh, the point is that they're finding out an interesting thing about the brain. You know, the human brain has all these little receptors there, and there's morphine receptors. And like, um, if there's any kind of chemical that you can take, and it suddenly starts your brain buzzing in a new reality program and zipping around faster, or slowing down to honey swamp, or changing your state of consciousness in any way, you know, it, it's not uh, bicarbonate of soda. It's a drug, usually a botanical-based, I'd say, and we'll learn much more about this tomorrow when Dr. Shogun and the real heavy... See, um, we've had the political know-how here, and I'm here for the, 
<laughs> the midbrain tickling, right? <laughs> I'm the cheerleader. <laughs> it's my job to get you warmed up for the Super Bowl, which happens tomorrow. <laughs> when the real heavy hitters are going to come out and tell us what to do. <clears throat> but, um, <laughs> that's them. But, um, see, if, um, if the human brain, you know, if LSD is so terrible, well, how come the, uh, the brain has all these receptor organs or these lowered thresholds or the serotonin, anti-serotonin? Uh, I'm sure Dr. Shogun and others will explain this in more detail tomorrow, but how come the human brain is wired in such a way that if you take like a few millionths of a gram of this mysterious substance, um, you're in an altered state of consciousness now? Do you think there was a flaw? Do you think that God made a mistake? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think there are any mistakes in evolution. I think that an evolutionary intelligence, a biological intelligence, a Gaia wisdom that has taken us in four billion years from the Precambrian swamps, little unicellular amoebas lying around floating and sucking, and in just four and a half quick million, billion years, they got us to the high altitude of Howard Cosell and Monday Night Football. I mean... <laughs> There are no mistakes in evolution. And, if I, and by the way, this, this Darwinian bullshit, you know, uh, uh, there's an interesting thing, there's a creationist versus the Darwinian uh, fight going on now. Man, that's like a fight between the Christians and the Arabs. They're both wrong. Uh, the Christians believe that uh, Jehovah did it. <laughs> he got off his camel. <laughs> And without even a computer, I mean, he just did it with, what, they have an abacus in those days? I, I was debating a man from the moral majority, state, of president, state president of the moral majority from the state of Washington about a few months ago. And believe it or not, on a stage in front of about three or 4,000 college students, he said that he was convinced, and all his friends were convinced, and a lot of his scientific friends were convinced, that the universe was created about 4,004 years ago. And... <laughs> And according to Secretary Watt, don't worry about the Redwoods because it's going to end before the next fiscal budget or something. <laughs> it's going to end with the Reagan administration, I'll tell you that. <laughs> anyway, I'm a creationist. At that uh, hearing down in Mississippi about uh, uh, two weeks ago, very interesting, you know, all the liberal, New York, intellectual, Darwinian, uh, hotshot scientists came up and proved that evolution is a blind force, natural survival, four and a half billion years of rape, <laughs> leading to bigger and better macho, you know, Darwinian theory is all about, it's very jockstrap, playing fields of eaten. There was a man named Wickram Singh who wrote a book with a philosopher Hoyle, uh, I think it's called The Life Cloud, in which he uh, was touting a theory of panspermia, which has also been touted by Sir Francis Crick, who won the Nobel Prize with Watson. The theory of panspermia is that um, it's just as logical or not to assume as a possibility. We're not just uh, doing final um, uh, takes here. Or it's not final cutting procedure. That it's, it's very likely possible that uh, life on this planet uh, didn't evolve by accident. You know, that's what they're teaching in the, in the biology school today that life is an accident here that started in a Precambrian swamp about four billion years ago. There's a bunch of ammonia molecules hanging around and a fried out some methane molecules and they invited over some hydrogen girls and oxygen boys and place get hit by lighting and they all began to copulate. I mean, <laughs> it was a terrible accident, you know. And 
we'd still be little cellular creatures except for, you know, copying errors, boo-boos, glitches, and, and making mistakes, errors, making men stronger, and, you know, like, you know what the Darwinian theory is like. Well, this professor, um, Singer, came to Mississippi, and very few papers publicized. I bet you didn't hear about it. He said something very interesting. He's not a Christian. You know, he's a, he's a, called a Gaia theorist biology. He believes in some sort of biological intelligence. He said, the theory of Darwin, of Darwin you know, that is all started by accident without any plan, is essentially as though a tornado whipped through a junkyard and assembled a 747. <laughs> now, uh... I'm not giving you any final answers here as to uh, which one of my friends created the universe. <laughs> but I'm simply opening up your mind to the possibility that neither Darwinism nor creationism of the Jehovah freaks is the final answer. And science is still out on this question. And uh, as more and more people learn how to use drugs intelligently in the next 20 years and get back to their microscopes and their DNA uh, mock-ups, we may have some more interesting information on exactly how evolution got started. <laughs> now... You think, I know what you think, you think I'm rambling, don't you? <laughs> you think I forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> We're here talking about the intelligent use of drugs, aren't we? <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't be hard on me here. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm. Well, there's a time and a place and a purpose for each drug, Right? Like, I think anyone that takes cocaine after midnight and has to get up the next morning is, well, not very intelligent, tired, right. <laughs> and fucking talked out, huh? <laughs> well, anyway, um, we could go through all these different drugs. Uh, there's a time you want to use a downer. There's a time when you want to turn off your mind and get in your body. There's a time you want to... Uh, climb out of your body entirely. Ketamine is a good drug to do that. We could, I could list you eight classes of drugs, and I'm sure with any um, uh, helpful questioning from the audience, Dr. Shogun will, will suggest to you many, many, many uh, new possibilities for human intelligence and human sensation and so forth. Uh, but we're here to talk about LSD because it's a psychedelic conference, and um, um, I want to tell you a very interesting definition of, of LSD that uh, pleases me. One of my dear friends and a man that I admire very much, uh, who I hope is going to be here tomorrow, is named Oscar Janiger. Do you know how many of you know the name Oscar Janiger? Yeah, Oscar Janiger is a, a psychiatrist uh, uh, from uh, Los Angeles, and he started in the 1950s a research project in which they were studying LSD. Now he's a very modest person and a very extremely wise and intelligent person. He's never been busted, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although he gave LSD to over 700 people. Uh, thousands of administrations, never any problems, including people like Cary Grant and Jack Nicholson, you know. You, you know, many of you probably don't know, in the high point of LSD advertising, we had the number one product um, commercial uh, endorser that you could, anyone would possibly want. We had a man going around the country saying, LSD has changed my life, LSD has made me this and maybe that. You know it was? Cary Grant. Do you remember that? How about a round of applause for good old Cary, huh? <laughs> Anyway, the definition of the, of the clinical effects of LSD. Uh, Oscar Janiger gave, uh, as I say, LSD sessions to over 700 people. He had them questionnaires, interviews, uh, had a 
team of, of semantic psychologists do content analyses to pull out the phrases that were used most often. Then he had these typed on cards, so-called Q-sort, which you get very elaborate and sensitive, sophisticated statistical study of the, of the power of these words. And he finally, after all this um, uh, clinical psychometric work, came up with a list of the words most commonly used by people to describe their LSD experiences. And that's kind of an interesting uh, uh, issue, isn't it? Now, one concept that was used by almost everyone that took LSD, the number one concept was, it's all alive. <laughs> with the implication that um, it's all got intelligence. Uh, it's all communicating. It's not a dead world out there. I mean, uh, see that flower, it's alive. See that tree, it's alive. See that stone, it's alive. Aldous Huxley, in this famous uh, Doors Perception chapter, you know, said, look at that chair sitting there just being alive, <laughs> sending chair talk to me. Okay, the number one thing is everything is alive. Number two was everything moves. I think that's hot. <laughs> number three was... It comes in waves. <laughs> now tell that to Einstein and uh, Albert will say, you bet. <laughs> In fact, tell any quantum physics, uh, physicist those three little definitions of anything. And they're going to say, yeah, it's not bad. Uh, what equations are you using? Then there's another one. What was the other one saying? Oh, yeah. It's all connected. <laughs> Now, this can go bad, you know, if you're having a paranoid situation, and uh, it's all alive and it's all connected and it doesn't seem to like you. <laughs> but we're all beyond that, aren't we? <laughs> anyway, uh, now, I do want to, uh, to uh, be extremely serious here and to lay upon you a heavy rap about two books which I've read recently, which really have changed a lot of my perceptions about myself, about us, about what we've been going through, and what we will go through in the years to come. These two books are tremendously um, changeable, and they're very optimistic on the bottom line. The two books are a book on the baby booms called Great, Je Great Expectations by Landon Y. Jones. How many of you read it or heard about it? Great Expectations by Landon Jones. And the second is a book, I'm sure you've heard of this one, I don't know if you've read it or not, The Third Way by Alvin Toffer. How many of you read that? Okay. Let me tell you a little bit the first, the first book is about the baby boom. According to Jones and my 40 billion, billion, as Carl Sagan would say, neurons, <laughs> do the cha-cha-cha when I hear this concept. Landon Jones' concept is, and it's, that the greatest thing that ever happened to the human species since we climbed out of the caves or down from the trees happened uh, between the years 1946 and 1964 when the birth rate doubled. Now, doubling a birth rate is not doubling your income or doubling your uh, grade point average or doubling your, you know, uh, football score. When you double a birth rate, you are throwing a monkey wrench into the whole process of evolution. Not negatively. You're just totally changing everything. What that means is, between the years 1946 and 1964, they expected about 38 million people to be born. They th after World War II, there'd be a little boom. When the boys come back from the front, they want to make up for lost time. And then uh, they expected it to drop. So 
instead of 38 million people, we had 76 million, that's roughly almost 38 million unexpected arrivals. Now, man, you simply can't add 38 million people to a country like this. Like, suppose tomorrow you woke up and there were 40 million new arrivals here. I mean, can you imagine the freeways? Can you imagine the, uh, you know, the uh, try, try to get a job? Can you imagine the problem? Well, that actually happened in this country. Now, I confess that I was caught up in this, what they call um, procreation ethic, or procreation. It was a mania. I tell you, it was a mania after World War II. I came back from World War II, and uh, my wife and I, and all of our friends, we decided we were going to have babies. And we just had babies. Like no one ever had babies before. I tell you, there were so many babies, you couldn't believe it. Everyone there were babies. And people in those days, you didn't have a baby. You what's wrong with you? Are you queer or something? You know? <laughs> uh, now, what happened with all these babies coming along? That's from number one. We had to double the diaper factories. We had to double the factories that made little ointments and sweet-smelling things for the 40 million additional bottoms that we had. When they went to nursery school, we had to build new nursery schools for them. When they went to primary, we had to double the number of primary schools. When they got high school, double the number of high schools. Now, we're doubling the number of jails for you. <laughs> you can explain so much by this baby losing. The reason there's an, uh, an unemployment situation here today is because there are twice as many of you for the expected jobs. Uh, the reason there's a housing shortage, same reason, figure it out. Once you get this concept, it kind of changes a lot of things in your mind. Now, I'm going to switch and hold that for one moment. There's 76 million of you. 76 million of you. In 1988... Uh, you'll be between the ages of, uh, what, 24 and 42, yeah. Can you imagine what's going to happen then? Okay, another thing that happened in 19... <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> another thing that happened in 1946, a very magical year, was Toffler's third wave started. Now, Toffler says that the first wave was agriculture 10,000 years ago, uh, farming, agriculture, the farming culture, civilization was based upon land. It was feudal, not much change. You live, live around your own village. A very stratified, static society. Went after 10,000 years, and about two or 300 years ago, the second wave was the Industrial Revolution, which everything moved to the cities because the factories were there. And human life in the second wave became factory-oriented. I want to tell you, I was brought up as a second... So you people don't even know what I'm talking about. Except you've seen uh, the old people... So I was brought up as a second-wave person. Uh, I'm not talking intellectual sociology here. I'm telling you that when my little red mouth wanted a baby or a nipple, I got it on schedule. Uh, my mother fed me uh, food in cans because she was led to believe by the factory-oriented uh, mentality at the time that anything that came from a factory in a can was better than something that just growed out in organic <laughs> filth out there. I mean, it was... It was insane, you know. So our schools were like little factories, you know. And we'd, uh, the principals were checking promptness. You were supposed to be on time. Everyone was taught the same thing. Standardization, centralization. We, all, we lived in little boxes. Uh, the nuclear family, no more grandparents and all that. We all moved to the city. I mean, it was really an insane time. Obviously, we had to go through this in order to build the things we had to build to get us where we are now. But uh, the, uh, the third wave started in 1946. And the third wave 
has to do with intelligence, electronics. Uh, the third wave has to do with information, in which not power or mechanical force, but uh, brain power is involved. And we're talking here, computers are talking about uh, video. See, now let's go back to the, the baby boom. Those of you in this room are an alien species. You are third wave critters. Because you were exposed to a world that no other human beings were ever exposed to before. Because the minute you climbed out of the crib and you crawled across the room with your little pudgy baby hands and you touched that TV dial. And you began dialing and tuning realities. All of you in this room have experienced more realities, more crises, more life. You've seen more than the wisest sultans and philosophers of the past. By the time you were ten, man, you were burned up. Not to mention the fact. <laughs> not to mention the fact, see, I forgot to tell you this, that my wife and I, and everyone in our nursery school, and everyone that I knew in graduate school, we were agreed on one thing. We were going to raise you different than we had been raised ourselves. <laughs> Were we insane or what? <laughs> no, sir. See, we were brought up in depression and all that stuff, you know, saluting the flag, authority, you know, submission, robot obedience. Not for you, kiddies. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to give you the best of everything. We're going to lay those old guilt trips on you. We're going to force you to go to church because, you know, original sin and all that. We're gonna, we were going to treat you, believe it or not, as human beings. Now, that's pretty reckless, isn't it? <laughs> so, we trained you to be consumers. We trained you to expect the best. And then we had old Mr. Television sitting there in the corner of the room saying, Hey, post is better than Wheaties. Yeah, listen, you deserve the best. What kind of diapers do you want? Hey, baby, you want this kind of little doll, don't you? You want a Barbie doll. You want the best. You want the best. So naturally, we got 76 million of you now running around with Gloria Vanderbilt's name on your ass. <laughs> The terrible thing about you alien creatures is you want excellence. You're not going to settle for anything less than the best. You don't realize that you're supposed to go to work nine to five and punch that clock. You pay your dues, man. You don't know about depression and the value of the dollar. <laughs> you know, when I, I, I talk this way when I'm debating Gordon Liddy, and he gets up and he says, what you're talking about is an infantile point of view. People have got to learn to grow up and learn that it's a, the, the world is a bad neighborhood. <laughs> because it, you totally freak out the adult population. Because you're self-indulgent. And because, you know, I go back from college lecture tours and I talk to people in Hollywood and they say, Hey, what are the kids like in college? I said, gee, you know, they're amazing. So they've been through everything that we went through and... 10 years or 60 or so, they went through it in high school or maybe junior high school. And, you know, uh, the kids in college now, they're, they're really quite, in a way, cynical. They're very realistic. They're very practical. Uh, they, they want to get ahead. They want to get their own act together. They want to get jobs. They want to make money. They're thinking about their careers. And all these Hollywood people sit around and say, boy, that's terrible. <laughs> in other words, the college kids today are uh, they're ahead of the most adults. Uh, uh, and uh, some people, are, you know, think you're doing this out of fear. I don't believe it. I think that the average uh, boom 
generation person. You see, the key thing in evolution, the key thing in psychology, which comes as an insult to psychologists, really, when you come to think of it, is, you know, the generation you belong to is of key importance. Particular. It didn't matter, see, in the first wave, what generation, nothing changed. There was no change in the village, you know. The duke was there, the baron was there, the uh, land was owned by those people, you know, and we worked in the fields or whatever. There was no change. But um, particularly in the last uh, 50 years, the generation you belong to is a psychological determinant or behavioral determinant of tremendous... Look, you notice all the old people today, whether they're left-wing, right-wing, conservative, liberal, they're all united. The Great Panthers, they want more Social Security. See, They've got their generational uh, thing together. Um, so that the fact that you belong to this generation uh, that does want excellence, that does expect everything, and you're reasonable enough now and realistic enough now, you're not hippies anymore. Hey, peace and love, man, can I borrow a dollar? You know, you're not at that stage anymore. You realize that, you know, uh, you create your own world, you have to work for it. Uh, in other words, it takes much more responsibility, you know, to run your own uh, reality movie than to be a dumb, badly paid extra in somebody else's dumb black and white documentary training film, right? <laughs> you're going to run your own movie, it takes a lot of hustling out there. And uh, it really is hard. It really is hard, you know, to run a 40 billion cell brain these days. You know? True. I don't blame these born-again Christians where they say, Hell, man, I can't handle it anymore. I'm going down on my knees and let Jesus uh, <laughs> call the plays from the Dallas Cowboy Huddle. <laughs> I don't blame them. I don't blame them. It's hard getting up every morning, scientific pagan, trying to run this brain and say... Jesus, i got to figure it all out myself. You know, there's no big brother. You know, nobody died for my sins, man. <laughs> I did my time for him. <laughs> and uh, no complaints. I loved every minute of it. <laughs> okay, baby boom, yeah, right. Um, Now, of course, uh, drugs, yeah, sure. <laughs> when the baby boomers hit uh, high school and college, that was around the mid-60s. Well, you can imagine what happened. Hey, there are drugs that are better than beer? I want it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, people ask me all the time, well, do I feel responsible or... Don't I feel guilt or don't I feel this or that? I said, you know, it's going to happen anyway. You know, we had this incredible demographic genetics thing happening. Uh, 76 million aliens running around the, this tiny little country of ours wanting the best of everything. They're third world people. Now, the thing about LSD and the kind of drugs that we are here to talk about and that we take all the time are um, they're third wave drugs. See, most of the old drugs, opium, hashish, has been around for thousands of years. They're first. They're first wave drugs. You can smoke opium or smoke hashish and you sit down there and watch the trees grow, right? <laughs> smoke that good Afghani stuff and you look at the, the wool growing a sheep for three days, right? <laughs> but man, that's your gig. <laughs> but you're running a, a factory civilization, you know. You don't want people, you know, uh, and I agree. When I take an airplane as I sometimes do to go to Washington, D.C. I, I do not want my pilot hallucinating. 
I don't want him staring out the window wondering about the cosmos of it all. Uh, so, uh, it's inevitable that a, a factory-oriented industrial society like ours shuddered at the idea of millions of people, millions and millions of people, uh, taking drugs, which uh, were definitely motivation loss syndrome deals. <laughs> you see, she makes no mistakes, Miss Gaia in charge of the egg sperm division, makes no mistakes. The reason why LSD probably came along, LSD has been around, come on, uh, ergot and uh, uh, peyote, all these drugs have been around for centuries. They weren't hot, though, because the time when you were born, see, the industrial age is over. And all that shivering and upset that you feel, you know, the Republicans and Reagan and all that, they're upset because their civilization is finito Juanito. It ended. Uh, and we don't need 36 million factory-going, time-punching industrial robots. We don't need you doing that. We need you to lead the way into the information society, into the computer society, into the video society, in which decentralization and, and long-range communication, and the society of the head of space. Listen. Uh, uh, so, LSD is a third-wave drug. It speeds up, accelerates, jambles, scrambles. I mean, you, uh, you uh, use whatever metaphor you want, but uh, it's not your tidy, uh, compartmentalized, uh, compulsive, prompt, Second wave drug. Well, alcohol's great for that. Yeah, sure. The, 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 uh, the industrialists, and I'm not knocking them really, they played their part, and I love the, the fruits of industry. I came here uh, not on a donkey or by levitation. I came here in a car today. I'm not knocking industry and so forth, but we don't need human beings. Step by step, you know, uh, automation is taking away the jobs. And wonderful, wonderful. If a machine can do any muscular, uh, low-level job, you know, better as well or better than a human being, let the machine do it. Because, uh, you know, the idea shouldn't be full employment. The idea is, uh, you know, uh, as much time as possible free to uh, help us get together to make the next move into the information uh, side of the future. So LSD is, a, is definitely a third-wave drug, and that kind of explains to me one of the explanations why it came along just when it did. Now, um, I'm sure you all know, that I, how am I doing? How long have I been talking? I don't want, I don't want aesthetic judgments. I want time, man. We're scientists. <laughs> I know I'm great. I'm on a hot roll, right? Okay, but <laughs> I want the time. What is it? How long have I been talking? 10, 15. If I want to worry, can I worry? Okay. I won't worry. Yeah, the moon is full. Okay. I want to talk to you a little about the intelligent use of LSD and drugs like that. The key to it all, as you well know, is set and setting. We came out with that theory at Harvard about 20 years ago. And uh, set and setting explains 99% of what happens in an LSD experience. Set, of course, means what you bring as a person to the experience. And setting is the environment. Now, let me give you an example of set and setting. If you take LSD under the following conditions... You've just escaped from prison where they want to put you in the gas chamber, and you find yourself you find yourself in a hotel in Palm Springs where their FBI is having its local convention. 
That is bad set and bad setting. You're going to have a bummer. <laughs> now, the obvious set for a mind changing, altered states, brain accelerating experience like LSD, the obvious uh, intelligence set is you, you know why you're taking the drug. You have a purpose. It's part of your life pattern that you're not just, uh, I mean, you don't go up to a computer and kick it and say, uh, hey, uh, uh, turn it on, just let it go, you know, uh, that's a misuse uh, of the computer, it's, uh, you're going to get some crazy uh, readouts if you do that. I'm not against crazy readouts, by the way, <laughs> but uh, it's also sensible to know something about the biocomputer uh, that you're um, that you're turning on. I think that anyone takes uh, any kind of drug that doesn't have some, hasn't read the at least Reader's Digest literature <laughs> on you know, what's involved here when you take MDA or take LSD or what, what, what is a midbrain anyway. I think you should know something about the, um, the equipment. Um, the facts are, as I view them from my faraway position, this is not a scientific statement, but it's my appraisal, that uh, if you take LSD and throughout the history of the last 20 years, those who have taken LSD uh, with some thought and preparation at a time when they were feeling good about themselves, in a situation, an environment where they were surrounded by pleasant and inspiring stimuli with little chance of intrusion by noxious elements, and with a, a companion who has had some experience with you, the chance of you having a serious harmful trip are less than one percent, or one 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 percent. I mean, you're you're safer there than you are on the Santa Barbara Highway <laughs> at rush hour. I would also say that in the last analysis, 99 percent of really bad trips, or even moderately bad trips are due not to the drug, or not to the set of the person, but to the setting. Because we have found out in thousands of our own experiences, I'm sure you have too, that matter, we all get freaked out, we all get moving too fast, we all, you look at computer people sometimes, you watch people using computers, sometimes they don't know where they're at. You know, we've all been there, but if you have someone around, you know, put the hand on your shoulder or something, you say, it's all right, you know, it's just a computer. <laughs> um, the chances of any long-range serious problems are, are, are minimal. So in other words, uh, uh, LSD bad trips, and there have been many, uh, are easily preventable by intelligent, thoughtful people. Now, an unfortunate thing happened, a predictable thing happened in the 1960s when we were discussing LSD. See, we didn't know anything about the baby boom. We didn't know there were 76 million of you out there wanting the best of everything, including the best of drugs. We thought we were going to have our sedate, scholarly centers where uh, middle-aged intellectuals uh, would uh, get together and take drugs and we'd write books and we'd write manuals and maybe in the next generation, you know, blah, blah, blah. We didn't know there was this horde of 76 million aliens going around with your big mouths open wanting sugar cubes and <laughs> instant bliss and total satorian. <laughs> uh, we were as surprised as anyone else. So uh, when we saw that happening, 
And believe me, I'm not to blame for the baby boom. <laughs> I did my share, but... <laughs> when we saw what was going on, we did rush out and we tried to program good trips. And we wrote manuals and we gave lectures and we had slides and we got the Beatles to write nice songs and we got the birds to write nice songs and we tried to brainwash. It's all brainwashing. When you take a drug like LSD, you pull the old programs and anything that comes in, you know, you listen to it, so you're totally vulnerable, helpless. So we tried to give positive suggestions. It's wonderful. Float downstream. Don't worry. This is not dying. You remember. Uh, go with the flow. Uh, trust your own brain. Um, uh, meanwhile, the forces <laughs> of Darth Vader <laughs> and his narcotic agent commandos deliberately attempting to fuck up the brains of the baby boom and turn them against their own internal divinity we're going around saying things like this if you take LSD you will jump out a window <laughs> if you take LSD you will break your chromosomes crack <laughs> See, we didn't know that 8 million of you, 8 million of you took LSD. We had no idea it was going to happen. So we couldn't get 8 million copies of our books out. We, we couldn't be there when some poor person, you know, you know, uh, suddenly in the middle of Times Square, high on acid, and nothing to do but break their chromosomes, you know? <laughs> it was called the brainwash war of the late 60s. Um... Another thing that happened then was uh, we, in advertising and promotion, got way ahead of the uh, production department. There simply wasn't enough LSD for 8 million consumers. And everyone had 10 friends waiting. So, uh, interesting, you know, law, the economics of drugs, very different from, from money. You know, Gresham's law and money that bad money drives out good money like bad money will drive out gold the thing is opposite in drugs good drugs will drive out bad drugs really if you had a choice of uh, you know uh, Sandoz acid and PCP <laughs> or some wonderful wonderful Colombian marijuana and uh, you know uh, Coors beer <laughs> don't want to offend anyone but let's be got to face facts there uh, so you have 8 million consumers and baby, remember, you were consumers you wanted it, you wanted it, you were going to take no for an answer uh, so in this uh, vacuum there moved uh, two groups of people well-meaning uh, people tried to make LSD and they bungled and that's terrible and then some really sleazy people uh, would just uh, take anything, you know, methadrine and put some strychnine in it or God knows what, and sell it as LSD. I want to tell you something about bad experiences. I don't care how you've been bummed out in love or losing money or uh, whatever. There's no experience in the world that is quite as miserable as a bad LSD experience when you start getting a headache or a stomachache about two hours into it. Um, so there were a lot of very unpleasant trips, uh, which was due, uh, and uh, uh, I want to thank Bruce out there for uh, calling my attention to this. It took me a long time to figure this out after he taught me. 
that, uh, yeah, there was no question about it that uh, there were a lot of uh, bad substances going around. And bad, as I said there's no bad drugs or good drugs. Uh, uh, bad in the sense that uh, a good drug is the drug that you need at the time you need it, the place you need it, to get your life and get your brain operating in a way that will create the reality you want. So this was unfortunate. And uh, it did cause a... It did cause a, a slowdown, maybe, in the consumption of LSD. See, none of us are really sure. There's one theory that says that people just went on taking acid all the time, but they just didn't shout about it. People just went on taking LSD, and they didn't uh, run down the streets naked saying, hey, I found God. You know, they roll over in bed and whisper it to someone, maybe, but um, uh, there was no big bumper sticker deal. And then uh, there were other whims, you know, they got the Vietnam War going and the hostages, so there are too many things for the press to be worried about than, than LSD. Uh, one thing I do know is true, and Dr. Shogun will tell you a lot more about this tomorrow. There are a lot of people that didn't stop taking LSD and researching LSD. Uh, people in laboratories and uh, universities and uh, research departments, uh, and many of them in their own private uh, institutions and even in their own homes. Serious-minded, quiet, uh, well-educated pharmacologists and chemists and clinicians who were studying, studying, improving uh, the drugs, so that the drug movement, the LSD psychedelic movement, has continued quietly, and uh, apparently it seems to be uh, blossoming and flowering again everywhere. I, it's always interesting, you know, when uh, the only way we really know from the newspapers what's going on in the drug world is when you read the boastful uh, statistics of the narcotics agents. Well, we just busted uh, three million pounds of marijuana and ten billion dollars worth of cocaine, plus a lot of uh, PCP and acid. Well, hooray! <laughs> you know, as LSD is appearing more and more and more on the uh, on the bus rap sheets uh, that you read in the newspaper, which may be a sign of the times. Um, one thing did happen. I, I don't know whether this how this figures in here, but when when the LSD boom dropped off. Lisa talking about it, the mood went down, didn't it? You know, the music was never as good. You know, I mean, uh, John, John Lennon, uh, you know, told me several times that, you know, the Beatles' best music came during that period when they were getting really high and far out. Um, the, um, interesting, too, the space program, you know, was really, the outer space program was really booming in the late 60s. And as soon as Nixon came in and they said, hey, we don't want people getting out far beyond our radars, uh, there's, always a, there's always a perfect correlation between uh, the inner space and the outer space movements, at least as we get them visibly. Uh, another interesting thing, you know, the suicide rate among teenagers is now epidemic, and there are big television documentaries now. You read about that and heard about it? The suicide rate among adolescents, isn't that interesting? You know, because... Uh, there's a lot of talk about people jumping out windows with LSD and how uh, LSD was dangerous and hurt people. Well, you know, the facts of the matter are that uh, in the 1960s, you had two choices. Uh, if you went to Vietnam, and less than 8 million went to Vietnam, 50,000 young American boys were killed in Vietnam. If you took acid on your induction day and dyed your hair purple... The chances of you living through the Vietnam War were practically perfect. <laughs> that 
fair. You know, the suicide rate actually went way down during the 60s. Now, I'm not saying that that's due to LSD. Uh, suicide rate always goes down when something exciting is happening, when something hopeful is happening, when something enthusiastic can be a war, can be uh, some anything that gets people, particularly young people. You've got to give young people hope. You've got to give young people something to live for. You've got to give young people something that makes it, you know, exciting to be on this planet. You know, and sometimes I think about the kids growing up today. My wife raised by a lunch it. What, what do the kids mean that they're told by Reagan and by the uh, powers that be and the economists and so forth? Boom, doom, you're never going to get any single houses again. You're never going to have a chance, you know, to, uh, there, there are too many uh, jobs and not enough people, too, you know, jobs. I mean, uh, there's going to be a World War III, baby. Get ready. We're going to really bomb those Russians. I mean, oh, boy, I don't call that a hopeful. I don't call that a confidence, uh, courage-instilling uh, approach to young people. Well, um, uh wasn't that way in the 60s, was it? You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Ah, if only dear Tim could see us now. <laughs> As my uh, sainted mother sometimes said, everything is different, but nothing has changed. Hmm. I'd like to uh, pass along a few of my thoughts about the talk we just heard, but uh, time is pressing down on me today. However, I, I can't help but to mention one thing that he didn't say when he was talking about the false rumor that LSD caused chromosome damage. The story he didn't tell is that uh, when a reporter asked him to comment about that story when it first came out, his answer was classic. Instead of uh, explaining to the reporter that the story about broken chromosomes was totally bogus, completely false, he took a different tack. So rather than discuss the flawed science in the report, he instead said, Maybe so, but go back and tell him that it also gives you a two-hour orgasm. <laughs> and uh, that went a long way to getting people to look more closely at the story. Just a little bit of psychedelic trivia that I thought you'd enjoy. Now, uh, for a little news from the rest of the world, uh, I'll spare you from any Facebook talk today, but I do want to let you know that uh, both Dope Fiend and Queer Ninja are now on Twitter, for those of us who are big fans of all the programs on the Cannabis Podcast Network. Of course, uh, we don't yet have any kind of uh, plan for using this tool to help to find the others, but uh, my hunch is that something interesting is going to uh, grow out of all these little tweets. I also uh, received a nice message from the artist Michael Perry, who had uh, this very interesting take on art that I'd like to read. And Michael says, Hello, Lorenzo. I thought I would send you some images to keep on file, just in case you ever decide to use them. I have chosen art as my mode of communication, because the spoken word is such a limited medium. No disrespect intended. And none taken, of course. <laughs> And he goes on, I disagree with the old paradigm of a picture is worth a thousand words, and would instead say that a picture is worth a thousand conceptual subtleties that resonate with our higher consciousness on multidimensional planes of existence. Well, I really like the way you put that, Michael, and uh, I hope that our fellow saloners will uh, give what you say some thought. If I had the time, I could uh, go off on a left-brain, right-brain track from here, but I'll leave that up to you to uh, do on your own. Michael goes on, There is a plethora of incredible art out there that you could use on your platform. 
I would encourage you to create a featured art section that could be changed monthly or even quarterly. It would give your website a boost, I'm sure. <laughs> well, almost anything would probably give my websites a boost, and uh, it isn't for lack of volunteers who want to help. But uh, even if I farmed out most of the work, uh, my own involvement would take uh, more time than I have available right now. I hope to change that situation once my novel is finished, uh, but for now we'll just have to struggle along without all of the uh, bells and whistles that I hope to include one day. The last thing Michael had to say was, I have only just begun to publish a few pieces of my work. I would also be happy to send you a commission from any sales that resulted. This esoteric stuff is great, but we all have kids to feed. And if you've got teenagers, that's no small potatoes. Ouch. LOL. <laughs> and uh, I really hate to point this out to you, Michael, but uh, after the teenage years comes college and uh, another never-ending stream of bills. But if all goes well, uh, you may eventually have some grandchildren. And grandchildren, I've discovered, are really what makes life worth living. The other thing I'd like to pass along right now is that although I really appreciate all of the offers to uh, receive commissions on various things, I've decided to uh, keep it simple and not get involved in commerce. If you've uh, been to our notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, you've seen the, the uh, banner for Guyan Botanicals. And this is the site of uh, one of our fellow saloners who did a great deal of free work for me in the early days of the salon. And he also happens to have a top quality line of products. And even though he's offered on many occasions to pay me a commission, I don't take one uh, for several reasons. Uh, the main reason is that, uh, like Michael, E-Rock X1 also has a family to care for. And I've got my lifestyle uh, reduced to a point where that extra money isn't really necessary to keep me going. So a big thank you to all of our fellow saloners who have offered art and music and other things to promote through the salon. But for now, at least, uh, I want to keep the salon as commerce-free as possible. And uh, speaking of being free, uh, in case you missed it, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, has published uh, an extremely comprehensive and very readable guide that's titled Surveillance Self-Defense, Practical Advice on Protecting Your Private Data. And uh, you can find that project at uh, ssd.eff.org. And I'll post uh, that link uh, along with the program notes for this podcast. But here's a brief summary of uh, why this may be of uh, some importance to you. EFF created the Surveillance Self-Defense site to educate Americans about the law and technology of communication surveillance and computer searches and seizures, and to provide the information and tools necessary to keep their private data out of the government's hands. The guide includes tips on accessing the security risks to your personal computer files and communications, strategies for interacting with law enforcement, and articles on specific defensive technologies such as encryption that can help protect the privacy of your data. You can imagine the Internet as a giant vacuum cleaner, sucking up all of the private information that you let near it. We want to show people the tools they can use to encrypt and anonymize data, protecting themselves against government surveillance, said EFF staff technologist Peter Eckersley. Privacy is about mitigating risks and making trade-offs. Every decision you make about whether to save an email, chat online, or search with or sign into Google has privacy implications. It's important to understand those implications and make informed decisions based upon them. 
and we hope that surveillance self-defense will help you do that. So uh, you may want to take a look at some of the uh, tips that they give so that uh, you can have a little more privacy than the average web surfer enjoys. And uh, finally, I want to mention a TED Talk that I'm, that's T-E-D, a TED Talk that I'm uh, pretty sure you've already seen. It's by uh, Jill Bolte-Taylor, and if her 18-minute presentation doesn't completely blow you away, then uh, you either didn't listen very closely or, uh, or I don't know what. Uh, but I've listened to it three times now, and I, I got something new to think about each time. I still haven't integrated everything I learned from this talk into my own life, but uh, she sure has given me a lot to work with. And you can find uh, that talk through a link on your program notes, or you can go to www.ted.com and search for uh, Jill Bolte-Taylor. That's uh, B-O-L-T-E, Taylor. Uh, and you'll, you'll find it right at the top of the list. I promise you that uh, it'll be worth your time, and I don't say that very often. And I want to thank my new uh, Facebook friend, Pele, who joins us here in the salon from Sweden for uh, sending me that link and, uh, and for reminding me of what a powerful presentation Jill gave. Well, that's about all the time I have for just now, and so I'll uh, close today's podcast by reminding you once again that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, uh, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's uh, also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Human, dying, dying, artificial, and extraterrestrial. It is the impossible become possible, and yet remaining impossible.